Remember the first time you saw a race car on an open trailer? Maybe it was full of dirt, tire marks, and other battle scars. You wondered where it had been, and more importantly, where it was going next. Every open trailer has a story, and we're here to tell it. Welcome to the Open Trailer Podcast. Back again for another edition of the Open Trailer Podcast. My name's Andy Austin, and today we have Stage 2 of Maine Motorsports Hall of Famer and New England Auto Racing Hall of Famer Dave Darvo. On this episode, we progress through the 70s, and while other people are starting to have their cars built, he's still getting parts out of the junkyard. We stretch into the 80s and also... Dave tells a hilarious story on racing in Florida. Anyone who goes to the South knows that we stick out like a sore thumb. So you can imagine what the crowd thought of Dave on this day. Before we get to stage two, I want to thank everyone once again for the support of Open Trailer Podcast. We're only, what, six, seven weeks in and thousands of streams later. We're certainly getting the message out. I say we because every time you share something from Open Trailer Podcast, whether it's an episode or just the fact that you're listening, I don't think I can put into words how crucial that is to our success and how helpful you've been by doing that. So don't stop now. Show the world how you're listening. If you're in the shop getting ready for the season, make a post about that. There's nothing like word of mouth. It's something that really never goes out of fashion. So again, this podcast is successful because of you. So thank you. Open Trailer Podcast benefits Maine Vintage Race Car Association. Membership is our lifeblood, and you can become one for less than $2 a month. Family memberships, $25 a year, and you can also buy multi-year memberships. It helps us to preserve the history of racing in Maine. We have a lot lined up for 2021. We just need the green light. As with last week's episode, I'm joined by Steve Pellerin and Pete Silva as we visit with Dave Darvo. Enjoy! We're into the 70s now. We are? Yeah. It seems like you raced at a number of different tracks. We mentioned Wiscasset, Oxford. You went to Canada and raced as well. Yeah, and I couldn't talk French. A, a bunch of the A-class cars got together, and they decided to do a road trip. They went to Canada. Uh, <laughs> not a, Was it 13 or 14 cars went in all? Mm. I think the Libby boys broke down, and uh, Dave picked up the win. Yeah. So this is without the turnpike in 95, That's so right. they would go from Scarborough to Canada yes. in one day. Via the back roads. Yeah. And, and Dave, you couldn't speak French? No. So how did you get by? How did you get? It was good up there. Mm. Most of them could speak English. <laughs> and they done a good job at it. And, uh, and what tracks did you race up there? I, I, I think it was Moncton, New Brunswick was, was one of them. But I, I don't remember. There was more than one trip. Seemed like, I remember you winning and uh, Rita with the trophy. A uh, picture was in the program. I've got a question I've been wanting to ask you for a while. You know, I, I was talking about the six-cylinder car you wrecked. That was after Unity. might have been the first year there was asphalt there. Yeah, I don't and then you went back. To, then you went to Beach Ridge from there and raced on the dirt. What made you do that? And then from that point, what made you decide to build a late model sportsman car and come back from there? Well, at, at the Target. time, didn't Unity didn't Unity throw out the uh, the coupes 
David, and you still wanted to run A class, right? Yes. Yeah. You didn't want to build a late model just yet. No. So I, I don't know. There's quite a lot of confusion in that time. I remember what Steve's talking about now. I remember they discontinued the class, so that makes sense. Because Unity started late models in 66, I think, and your first year at Beechridge was 67. And and you ran 68, 9, 7, uh, 70, 71, and then in 72 you built the Chevelle and went yeah. to Wisconsin. 65 yeah. Chevelle. 65 Chevelle. You <laughs> yeah. brought it down that night, and there was a oh, yeah. big crowd in the pit area, most of us had never even seen a late model. Didn't know what it was. Yeah, so how, how radical was what Dave's car was compared to the rest of the pack at this point? Well, everything at that time, Andy, was uh, still open-wheel cars. Mm-hmm. So for him to show up, and there was a rumor going around, I don't know where it came from, that Dave had left us. And one of the reasons uh, he came down <laughs> was to show that he was still very much on the earth. And he brought this beautiful yellow number eight Chevelle. And the only other Chevelle that had been there before was Stevie Levitt in 1X. Yeah. Yeah. And you showed up with that thing, and uh, the crowd was like 10, 20 deep around your car that night. Very, very different, Andy. But it was a shape of what was to come. Where did you get the idea to go with this type of race car? You walk down through the pit, you see this guy, and you get an idea from him. Mm. You go over here and you see another guy and idea for him. You, you didn't put a Chevelle frame on that. You used a 57, 57 Chevy frame, Chevy right? Frame. right. Leaf Springs. Yeah. yeah. So you built that car in one week? Oh, yeah. I could make it in one day if I had to. Really? Oh, yeah. You get out there and get to work, you can, you can do it. And this is, you know, you work at 12-hour days on the race cars? You work till you can't go anymore. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's about it. Yeah, I was working for Sam Gaffin. Mm. Did you have uh did you have a, an allegiance to any one manufacturer? That's a sweet looking car. Uh any one allegiance to a manufacturer? Were you a Chevy guy? Were you a Dodge person? I was a Dodge person first part of it. Mm. Then I converted over to Chevy and I don't know why or how. But I did. A lot of people say that the 57 Chevy went so well and it was so conducive to, to racing compared to what was out there. And there were a ton of them back then. Yeah, well, that was Lee Springs in the back, I think. Yeah, Lee Springs were the key. Yeah. And guys like Dave in the earlier generation <clears throat> never been around Coil Springs. And those Chevelles going forward were all Coil Springs. So yeah. a lot of guys, Stan Scott, Ralph's first Chevelle, yeah. Russ Nutting. Russ Nutting. Even uh, Dick Glein's Camaro, the blue one, those are all on 55, 57 Chevy frames. Yeah. And then yeah. you go back to uh, to a Dodge Duster. Tell me about that race car. I, I don't <laughs> pay no attention for it. I just want to win a race. Yeah. So at what point did you say, I needed a new race car? Because you had so much success with a given type of car, and you're like, nah, I'm going to build another one. I don't know. I really don't know. The urge. It, it seemed like you can see something in another model mm. that you could do something with and you get into it and it ain't there. <laughs> are you still building cars yeah. based on uh, getting things from the junkyard? Are you still, I mean, where are you, where are you getting your parts? Junkyard. <laughs> when he started building that car, we would talk on the phone. It had been a while since he'd been around racing mm. and he was in a complete panic because there are no more junkyards. <laughs> what am I going to do, Pete? I can't find a junkyard. Why were they? Why were junkyards uh, falling out of favor in the mid-70s? 
Well, everything became a lot newer. And, you know, Urban Renewal came through, cleaned them up. And plus, the ones that are around are a lot newer type vehicles. And they have to keep crushing them, so they really just keep disappearing. So it was yeah. like cash for clunkers back then. Yeah, everybody building tube chassis and manufactured cars. That's yeah. interesting. So when people started, when you when did you start to see the sport of auto racing change? Really see shit. I think shit. I had a little late before I really noticed I got to do something. Mm. You know? So, and I don't know really what I did. That Plymouth one at more places than Wiscasset. It won a lot of races at Unity. P, at your at this point, where are you in racing? Are you still you still up in, in Unity? By the time I got going, guys like Dave and Fuzzy and Dana and Ralph and Stan, and everybody was already established. Yeah. So I was just trying to keep up or stay out of the way is probably a better way to put it. So when you came on the track, obviously you would you would watch Dave as um, you know, a, a fan in the stands, as a kid growing up. What was it like to compete with him for the first time? When I could finally keep up? <laughs> How long did it take? It didn't take you long. Uh, by the second, I think uh, the first year I ran four races, six races, and the second year I only won, ran four races, and I think I won the second time. And then, like Dave says, after winning his first race quick, there's a drop. Yeah. You think it's always going to be like that, and it isn't. No. But in the next couple of years, you know, I mean, they pin my ears back a lot of times, but I got a couple of licks in and, and – you know, once again, you're talking Davo, Graves, Fuzzy Holden, Stan Missouri, Ralph Nason. Yeah. I can just keep going on. I'm not trying to limit the field here, but <laughs> it's hard to find a place where you can even get mentioned in that conversation. How intimidating was it to be around them? It, it was because you didn't know if you were really doing right or wrong. Mm. You know, the things that came natural to you, you didn't know if it was right because sometimes you put yourself in a position that was going to affect other people and you didn't want to be that guy. Yeah. It just took a while. I think it took longer to be comfortable doing that than it actually took to be somewhat fast. Can you describe one situation that was uncomfortable getting to the point where you were fast? Like, did, did you, Was there a mistake that you made that you were like, geez, I really, I really learned from that? I think the week before I ended up winning the first race, I had a hell of a race going with Dana Graves. And I was probably holding him up more than I was beating him. Mm-hmm. And it ended up creating a pretty good sized wreck. <laughs> I was leading, so I figured it was my right that's to do what I wanted to way do. Way back then, that's their problem. Yeah. Well, he wasn't exactly way back. Yeah. <laughs> but I probably did some stupid stuff, and they got us into a lap car and wrecked us both. And yeah. uh, of course, I probably didn't act it in a conversation with him that I realized I was wrong. But, <laughs> you know, once you calm down and think about it, there was probably a better way to do it. The spring of 1974 at Oxford Plains. 100 lap race. Now you didn't buy tires too often, brand new tires for yourself, did you? No. Why not? They have no money. <laughs> but that day, Stan Meserve showed up with two sets. You bought one set. Well, I don't remember that. Yeah, you bought a set of new ones and you took the lead. The race got rained out around lap 78 and afterwards Stan came over and said he wished he'd got the tires that you had. As <laughs> I say, things happen so fast, mm. they ain't in memory. You, you don't remember all the things. You know, he's an independent boss. He didn't thank us for doing this. Well, that's very true, because when I get done, I'm ready to fold up, stay in the car. Yeah, you're ready to go home. I'm yeah. Done. 
So, yeah, that's uh, that's another question. Did you form friendships with a lot of these drivers, or when the race was done, were you just on to the next race? No, I, I think you form friendships with everybody. You know, because you're all out there trying to do the things you're doing or better you, and that's racing. Hmm. You, you can't get mad on them for doing that. You can get mad at them for putting in a pucker bro. <laughs> <laughs> but just uh, out engineering you. So uh, Steve brought up that specific race at Oxford. Um, do you remember anything about that engine? I never had a real good engine. That was the car that Harry Noseworthy helped you out a little bit with? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And Harry was quite an engine builder. By Jesus. But I couldn't afford his, his stuff. selection. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I went right back to my old ways, just using a piston to get out of the rods. Nothing was super. What was it like to, uh, what would those other guys think when, like, what was his name? Harry, you said? Harry what would it? What would those guys say when you came back from your stuff from the junkyard and beat them? I don't know because they never complained to me about it. Right. You, know? <laughs> you asked the question a little bit ago about him and friends. Hmm. It was a great answer he had. You became friends with everybody. In that era, we raced four nights a week, same crowd. Yeah. Wednesday nights, Friday, Saturday, and every Sunday there'd be an open somewhere, whether it was Unity, Wiscasset, or Oxford. So we were always together. Yeah. It's easy you, to you become get, friends. You gotta, you gotta stay together, because <clears throat> someday you're gonna break a spindle. Well, now you can walk down through the road and see him get a spindle. Yeah. Okay, can I have it. Yep. Yeah. Wow. Take it, put it on, go back to racing. And you still see that in racing today too. You know, people helping people out, but not nearly as much as, as back in the day. Well, I think they get better equipment. Mm. They just get better stuff. So the yeah. engine that you won that race that day in 74 was a $34 engine? Yeah. How did that come about? I bought it off your brother, didn't I? Off Gene Skillings. Mm. So you bought the motor off Gene Skillings for $34. You go up and you beat Stan Meserve, who bought more tires than you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And was jealous of your tires. Yeah. So you don't think they, I mean, how much is that driver? I mean, you got to take some credit for that. I don't know because your eyes and feet do all the work. And your eyes tell you you can make it through this place. Well, you try it. Hmm. Sometimes you make it, sometimes you don't. You talked about being scared your first race. When did you get over that fear of racing? Or those butterflies. I, I don't know if you ever do. I, I think, even today, I think you get a certain amount of butterflies when you go out into a race because you know you got to stick it in where you don't belong and you're going to crash some of the time. So I don't think you ever lose the butterflies. How bad the crash going to be, you don't know. So the butterflies, I think, are always there. And, and, and Pete can speak to that, too. I think if you care about winning and doing well, that's a lot of the butterfly deal. I think your feeling about what you're doing creates a lot of that. I'm not sure it's all fear about wrecking or yeah. something. I think it's fear about not producing that day, that moment. Well, it, it could be because after they once dropped that flag... 
you're a different Fuck person. Yeah, you, you just bolts the wall and go. Yeah. Right on. So you won a lot of those 100 lap races, which was different than, say, the 35 lap races, and you mentioned just completely, you know, balls to the wall. Yeah. Did you approach the 100 lap races differently than, than the sprints? No. 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 Not at just all. a race. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Dave, I want to mention a 100 lap race one night at Beach Ridge in A class. And you took the lead early on. Jimmy Brown come up alongside you. And for almost 75 laps, you guys ran clean together. Yeah. Side by side. And you got the win. Larry Tangway was right behind you guys in the question mark. He was waiting for either one of you guys to make a mistake. Jeez, you not like to have that memory. It's and, amazing what this man knows. And I know. both you guys spun out after the race. But I think it's a testament to your ability. And Jim, as well, you guys went that many laps side by side and never touched and you gave him the room on the restart into the turns and and likewise he did the same yeah it, it was just as a fan it was amazing stuff to see and when we left we, we couldn't wait to get back next week well i don't know i i would probably work on my ass off <laughs> yeah it was fun for you yeah in the stands <laughs> Yeah. Steve and I want to ask you a couple of trailer stories if we got time. Go right ahead. Go ahead, Steve. Yeah, what, remember the trailer, David, leaving here with the big, long, inclined trailer? And you guys would start the car up and work on it on the way down? Yeah. yeah. Or, or even putting bearings in the engine between here and there. Yeah. And getting to the track, button the car up. And then take it out on the track, working on it while you guys were en route. Yeah, yeah we've done that a lot. Wait a minute, you were working on the car in the trailer going down the road? I wasn't. I was driving the truck was there, hauling it. He, it was, he had a ramp over trailer. It was kind of ramps that went up on the trailer so you could get under the car. Yeah. Mm. I still got that, don't I? <laughs> I want to ask you about working on that trailer, and I guess the statute of limitations is passed as far as the rule book goes. You know, it didn't bother me Easy. at all. Yeah, yeah, the rule book didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a pretty common thing to be on that trailer, working on the car while you guys were headed down the road going to Beechridge or yeah. Oxford. Yeah, and, and the car would be even running, and you guys were, were tuning it up. Yeah. And it was no big deal no. back then. No. That was the very first mobile delivery. <laughs> you were the pizza guy before the pizza guy. <laughs> you keep asking him why he was so successful, and I think I looked at him as a competitor for a lot of years, even though we were friends, and since they've been here, or even a little bit in Chelsea, but mostly here, I've got to sit and spend time and, and reminisce. And at the end of the day, you find out how mechanically intelligent he was using common sense and logic while he was driving. I, I think there's a lot to that when it comes to racing, and he had that plentiful, believe me. Absolutely. I mean, when you look at the operations that he ran against in those eras, 60s, 70s, or 80s, and I'm, I'm the 60s, 70s guy, he, here's a guy here that beat, you know, some substantial race teams on a budget that would embarrass most people. <laughs> Uh, you know, he, he, his sponsor was the junk pile out back. At the end of the day, he's he's one of the, the first driver 
to win an actual NASCAR point championship in Maine at Wiscasset, one of two drivers to that. win a championship on dirt and pavement at Unity Raceway. Yeah, I've always been impressed with that. I think people forget that, especially the new people. And that's what's so great about this kind of history. People will start to understand that and maybe have a whole new appreciation of one man's ability and desire. How many races do you think you were in over the course of your career? Oh, Christ, I ain't got no idea. It says 1,200. No shit. Yeah. Well, I, <laughs> I never would have known that. Well, you stop and think in the early days. <clears throat> you talk about the Windsor of Fairgrounds. And you talk about the tracks Steve talked about. Those tracks all ran on different nights. I can't remember my father leaving on Thursday. You know, so it was almost like the Southern deal or even in the 70s and the open comm deal. You could race three or four times a week. Yeah. You start doing that for the length of your career. 1,200 isn't really that far-fetched. He's got over 250 uh, certified wins. Dave, you race at uh, a lot of tracks in Maine. You raced uh, at uh, trunk tracks that are not here anymore, like Cherry Field, yeah. Arundel. Arundel. Um, yeah. What are some of the tracks that stick out for you in Maine? You have a different mm. Question. trouble with different tracks. Mm. And some you can cure right off, and some you can't cure. Mm. Uh, I never did cure. <laughs> Was there a track that you just could never figure out? I don't know. What about Exeter? I liked Exeter. I, didn't, I don't know if I won that much because I don't keep track of nothing. Oh, you have Steve for that. <laughs> <laughs> what about uh, so racing in Caribou? What was uh, racing in Caribou like? Yeah, a little, a little rough, but I didn't get up that much. I think I got up there twice, yeah, maybe. On your list of, of tracks that you competed at, there are a number, of course, here in, in Maine and New Hampshire, but I see out of the blue Fort Wayne, Indiana. How did that happen? We happened to be up in uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana, and David said, oh, look, there's a track. Let's take the car. So he had his car with him, and he went out there, and why don't you tell him what happened with the tires? Well, I don't know. Yeah, no, you You're were doing telling, a, I think Dave and Joyce yeah. are telling the story that way, too. Yeah, you, you talk, and I'll listen. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't have the right tires on his car. And he went out and he was sliding all over the place. And so the guys came over and said, you know, we know you're from Maine, but why don't you take some of our tires? Just don't show us off. <laughs> and, and what happened? Don't show us off. Um, he did okay. He, yeah. he didn't, didn't win or anything, but boy, and then they come over and offered him a beer. That's the camaraderie again that we talk about. So did you find that racers in Indiana were different than races in Maine, or are you all one ilk? No, I, I don't see any difference. Watching the driver that's in front of you, what he does almost every trip. So you got to take his offset and make it work for you. You know, so it, it's the same old, same old story for you. What about racing in Florida, Volusia County and, and New Smyrna, um, places like that? Oh, I, I had to get up and stand in a puddle of water. <laughs> Thank My God. feet were burning like a mat. So they had to reach that. I climbed over that mat and stood in that water. Oh. They couldn't believe it. So in the middle of the race, let me just, again, paint the picture. Your feet are hot. You're racing in Florida. Yeah. You find a puddle. Yes. Yeah. And then you just get out and... Get out and oh, stuck my foot in and there. Steve, <laughs> Steve was actually... You're like a Looney Tunes cartoon come to life. And they called him a maniac. Right. Like, what was the track announcer doing at this point? Oh, I don't know. I wouldn't even listen to him. Yeah. 
You should getting satisfaction. <laughs> he was having fun with that. Mm. Uh, How many years did you race in Florida? My job ended up there. And then I'd race a few nights. Then, of course, we'd move on. Mm. So I might not get back after another year. So it wasn't a continuous deal. You might fit in there for two or three weeks. So one thing that we've talked, we've touched on is the fact that you could build race cars in an entire week. And and you did this in Florida as well? Yeah. Yeah. Right do it. So what, what happened? Like, how did that even come about? Well, I, I guess I sold one. Yeah. So it left me without a car. And this guy had this, this guy had this. And I just started bumming or buying or whatever. Really? And you get enough stuff together and build that car. Because I get the pipe benders and everything. So. Six days. It, it don't take long. So you sold your race car, didn't have a race car to race, came back the next week with a completely different race car, like a mutt race car from all about five yeah. or six different garages. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. You know, you hit on uh, doing things for people. We've asked you a number of questions about races that you've won or championships, which kind of go over your head a little bit. But I think that speaks to um, you as a person because when you would win all these races, you wouldn't hold on to the trophies. You were very much on to the next race. And the yeah. trophies themselves, who would you give the trophies to? Oh, some kid. You know, you want that? And he, oh, yeah. And you got a lifelong fan after yeah. that. Jesus, they just love it. You they know. do. So you said you're a Chrysler guy. How close were you with the whole kit car situation? I mean, of course, that was up in Unity as well. Uh, can you tell, tell me about that, your experience? The, the finances to buy something. Oh, right. You know, you you break the blow motor and you go in and you got to pay the long dollar all the way along. Mm. And there ain't another guy that's running one, you know, that's too friendly. But Nathan, you wouldn't give you the sweat off his balls. <laughs> <laughs> Radio edits. <laughs> no, we can't take that out. The the truth. No. Truth. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Oh, so you're elected into the Maine Motorsports Hall of Fame in 2004. Do you remember that night? Oh, not clearly. But some of the, the names that you were associated with, Steve, you were part of that night too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, Dick Walston, of course, Dick Garrett, yeah. J.B. McConnell, uh, Bob Bear. It was really a who's who of, of racing. And uh, when, when I was on the committee, um, your name obviously came right to the top as someone who uh you know was a, was a fan of the sport mainly 60s 70s to watch all of those people come together on that one night what was that like uh it defined a generation of, mm. of, of cars and, and drivers you know just uh people that were pinnacles in the sport and and there's been quite a few come along um uh, you know in subsequent classes as well like the Libby boys the Libby's yeah, Bob and Phil. I don't care where you are in this country. If they see you, they're going to come home and talk to you. you know, they're good boys. A couple of years later, in 2008, the New England Auto Racing Hall of Fame. How many people from Maine had been in by that time, Steve? Uh, probably five or six. Yeah, so you're definitely one of the first ones that are in there. Indeed. Yeah. What was it like to go to Connecticut and uh, receive that honor? Oh, it was a, it was a big deal. I was lucky enough to uh, do your introduction speech to that big p- building that was packed full of people. Yeah. And after the after the event was over, and I, I never mentioned this to you guys, but Dick Bergeron 
and Bugsy Stevens came over and they said we never knew how much you did on such a small budget and how amazed they were at what you accomplished yeah I mechanical ability I was left with my father always had horses (laughs) he never had a car do you still go to the races today? I never was a guy to go to races. I like to race, but I don't care about watching them. Even on TV? Well, on TV, I watch uh, them guys, but I don't. I don't go to no races. What do you think of uh, today's NASCAR? As someone that sits in a chair and watches races, are you entertained by the product on television? Some of the racers. Who's your favorite racer? Oh, time? I watch them. That's out of your category. You know, that's money. Right. And I never had that. <laughs> so when Richard Petty and Bobby Allison came up to Unity, would you compete against them? Oh, yeah. Yeah. What, what were those guys like to race with? They're good. Plus they get good stuff on their ass. Yeah. Rita's been your companion since 1969. What is um, has it been like to have her along for the ride? No, no, it's, it's been a good lifetime. Is there anything in your racing career that you wanted to accomplish that you, you never did? No. You go and do what you can. Hmm. If you pop up in that place, great. Most of the guys that run at that track will say Saturday nights pretty goddamn good you know I know you don't go to the races much but I'm sure you see it through social media and everything is there one kind of car that you would love to race would you race a modified a super late model the modified was exciting because you see everything happening Uh, do do you miss it yeah because it seems like everybody there is there to help you Hmm. you know if you need this you just walk down the aisle and ask people, oh, yeah, I got one. And and they don't never charge you for it. No, it, it, it's a pretty good one to be with. Mm. Now, Pete, go ahead. You've never lost the itch. I know we, we got that in your episode. Oh, I miss it every day. Yeah. I, and I know Dave does, too. No matter how he's explaining it to you, we've talked about it. Yeah. I agree with him on the modifies. I drove a vintage one one time. The, oh, the, the vision totally blew me away. Yeah. I, I was... Sounds like an awful contradiction in my life, but I wish I'd have jumped in those earlier in my life. Yeah, yeah. I can see they're why you guys it, loved so it so much. Easy to handle. You see everything all yeah. the time. Yeah, you you know what's coming. Yeah, I, I had some good days. I made a lot of good mistakes. <laughs> in my life over again, I'd like to do the same thing. No regrets. Yeah. No. Well, yeah, it's been a good day. Dave's one of a kind. On the next episode of Open Trailer Podcast, we'll head in a different direction. To date, we featured a number of people who have laid the groundwork for what we appreciate today. But it's equally important to recognize those who are still carrying the water and succeeding at the highest level. So next week, we check in with this guy. So, uh, the last half of the 05 season, a buddy that I grew up racing go-karts with, Corey Williams, who is now one of the head fabricators down at uh, Hendrick Motorsports, uh, he was racing the past super late model tour uh, up north, and he needed a spotter. So I started spotting for him some when I wasn't racing uh, at Beechridge in the Sports Series. Car. So how did that start? I mean, did you? I mean, you knew what a spotter was. Yes. Yeah. But why were you chosen for that job? 
That's a good question, I think. Wyndham's Derek Nealon, the first of two episodes, next time out on the Open Trailer Podcast. 